They're hay baling, and this person just comes out of nowhere, just wanders out of the orchard. And it was Ethan Lamb. He'd been living in the orchard, eating fruit and bombing the mountain. This is the Hop Podcast. My name is James Hopkin, and this is my podcast. It's where I tell stories, interview people about skateboarding, longboarding, downhill. There's a bit of downhill here. It's just one of the aspects of skateboarding that I absolutely love is downhill skateboard racing. So, And this episode is about Newton's. That's Newton's Playground, Newton's Nation. It's the World Cup race that we put on Mount Panorama in Bathurst. The first event, the first Newtons was in 2008. It was called Newtons Playground. We did the IGSA World Championships in 2009. Had a name change to Newtons Nation in 2010 and 12 and 13. And those years were renowned, the live stream that happened. Then it took a bit of a break. We brought it back last year in 2017. I'm going to talk about my top 10 moments. So I've been involved in every Newton's, and I suppose these stories more revolve around people and uh, competitors. It's not an exhaustive list. It's not like the absolute top 10. It's just, I suppose, you know, the 10 favourite stories I like to tell about Newton's. And I've redone this intro a few times because this podcast is a bit long. I tend to talk on a little bit about the stories. So I've gone back and I've shortened this intro a little bit. Also corrected a few mistakes. This was supposed to be a simple podcast. Hey, I just talk about my top 10 moments and it just, I suppose, there was a lot of edits. It took a long time to do this episode, so... This is all a learning experience. So before I get into it, let let me make some disclaimers. I'm going to miss quote people. I'm going to miss important people. But I and I will exaggerate stories. Let's say it's more bending the truth to my will. I know at the beginning of this podcast series, I said you know some of these interviews and stories will be for historical purposes. But you know sometimes it's good to tell a good story too. You know, there are some important people connected to Newtons. Obviously, the Azra crew, Haggy, Bugs, Pete Smith, Robbo, Marga, Blackwood, Bruiser. And there's heaps, heaps more. The volunteers and the people, people that used to work at Hopkins Skate at the Hop Shop that used to volunteer on Mount Panorama at Newtons. And Newtons started in 2008. It's an interesting story. There used to be, or there still is, an OG skate forum called Charlie Don't Skate. And there's a thread in there where Fitzy's talking about, I think it was, it revolved around Fitzy being towed behind a motorbike on Conrad Strait. Now, don't do that. That is definitely a bust. Talking about how Mount Panorama, you can't skate on Mount Panorama. There's big signs, no skateboarding. There's a lot of things you can't do on Mount Panorama. It is a racetrack, however, it's a racetrack on a public road. So when it's not closed to traffic, it's 
a public road where normal rule, road rules apply. I think my comment was that, you know, it only takes money, that everything's possible, everything has its price. So one day we will skate it. It'll probably have to be a big event. And fast forward to the V8 supercar racing, a skater by the name of Eddie Spearing was watching it on television from New Zealand and thought, we should be racing down this mountain. And he called Bathurst Council. And just by coincidence, Bathurst Council was in the process of organising a youth event. So they were looking for new ways of utilising the mountain, maybe a youth gravity festival. I believe it was the brainchild of Simon Rawlins. I don't know whether he came up with the idea I'm pretty sure he came up with the idea. He pitched it to Bathurst Council. He was put in charge of it. And he run, ran that first Newton's Playground. So he was one of the the important people in getting Newton started. The other person who I'll mention, and there's so many people connected to that first one. I mean, Azra had a full-on crew for that first 2008 event, is Fitzy. And I saw Fitzy... Last year at Newton's, he popped in to see the racing. He's not really part of the community anymore. He still skateboards. He lives with his family in the um, up in the central coast. And Fitzy did so much for that first Newton's. He doesn't get enough credit of uh, the amount of work that he did to get that Newton's rolling. You know, one of the reasons the racing was, was so good that weekend was because of Fitzy. And like I said, I, I mean, there were so many other people connected to Newtons. I can't mention them all. I came up with this idea for my top 10 for an article for Skate Slate. I said to Les, and I forget when this was, 2015 or maybe, I think it was 2016. And I came up with this idea. I pitched this idea to Les. He thought it was good. And I suppose... It was because I knew Newton's was coming back or maybe I, we wanted to go back to Newton's. After 2013, Azra took a bit of a break from Mount Panorama. We came back with a World Cup event at Mount Kira in 2016. I came up with this rough top 10. I've changed it a few times. I never really did that article for Skate Slate. Sorry, Les. But I thought it would make a good podcast when I was putting together this series, I thought, oh, I could throw this one in really quickly. It ended up taking a lot longer than I thought it would be. So that is the history of this this episode, or my ideas. And like I said, they're not. It's not a definitive list. It's my list. And I'll give. I'll tell you what the uh, the top ten is. It's number ten is meeting Coma. That's Coma, who was the first president of the IDF. Number nine is Robbo, David Robertson, or Robbo, Robotech as he's known, the uh, owner of Basement Skate. Number eight is Michaud, Michaud Urban. Number seven, Skady Katie, or Katie Nielsen. Number six is DeLua. Number five is Kevin Reimer. Number four is Jacko. Number three is Stryker. Number two is Team Green, a.k.a. Raggy and Scoot, who turned up at the 2009 IGSA World Championships. And my number one 
my number one story is Ethan Lowe. And I'm going to tell that one last, so you have to stick around for the Ethan Lowe story because it's an absolute cracker. It's one of my favourite stories, and it's one that we've told many a time. There's, there's probably been more Sector 9 boards sold on the back of that Ethan Lowe story than any other in Australia. And that's my top ten, and we're going to get into it right now. So my number ten story is about coma. And I, there's no one particular story. It I suppose it's just meeting coma. And that was at the IGSA World Championships in 2009. Coma and I spent a lot of time on the finish line together with uh, Marcus. And it was a turning point, I think, for Australian skateboarding, for the downhill, and I think for downhill worldwide. Because when... IDF was established in late 2012. It was was on the back of the Australian Skateboard Racing Association. All those original people, Haggy, Robbo, Mega, you know, they, and Bugs, you know, they were ASRA. And all the forms that IDF used, everything came from ASRA. It was everything that we'd developed and it was applied to a new national federation, uh, international federation. And it all started in the, um, at Newton's Playground in 2009. The 2009 was a special, special Newton's. It was one that we did ourselves. Um, 2008 was the first Newton's, and it was over the top. And I'll talk about that later when we do the... Ethan Lau story, but in 2008, it was a huge budget, and there was rock bands, musicians, there was all sorts of sports, it was a festival, and in 2009, you know, the the 2008 Newtons didn't go, you know, as planned, they didn't sell enough tickets, it wasn't um, a financial success, or didn't break even. So the council pulled out, an investor came in, and the numbers weren't good enough. But by that stage, Newtons had already got the 2009 World Championships. And Azra sat down, Haggy, myself, everyone, Bugs, Robbo, and we just thought, we're going to do it. And we worked so hard. I mean, Haggy literally quit his job. He quit his job for like three, four months. I mean, I hardly worked at all. Robbo, who was basically working in the hop shop, he literally did nothing but Newton stuff for like months, trying to do the live stream. You know, we were trying to figure out in 2009 how to cable a mountain and live stream, you know, video, which we did. And, you know, it was just... It was an amazing feat. Like, seriously, it goes down in one of my just all-time, I can't believe we did that. And we met Coma. So, I mean, at the back of all that, like, us doing the impossible, as in doing Newtons by ourselves, and we did Newtons all by ourselves. There was, Azra didn't get help from, like, anyone else. We did the racing. And so, every night, it was just, we're on a high. 
And the way ASRA works when we do these events is we have a headquarters, and that would be where everyone stays, usually a big unit, a house. We're all staying there. And every night after the event, we sit down, we eat, we drink, we tell tales of what happened, and we just analyze everything that happened for the day. What went well, what went bad. And then we have riders. We have you know people like Jacko or Kevin or Misho, you know, these guys, uh, Patrick Switzer, they would come to the headquarters and they would just tell us what went right and what went wrong. You know, that's no good, this is great. Striker or the commentators, you know, they'd be interviewing riders and people, they'd give feedback. So you have this amazing uh, just debriefing every night, every afternoon, every night. And sometimes we talk, you know, to quite late which we shouldn't because i mean we're like closing the road we're back racing at 7 a.m and we talk about the future and what we're doing globally and nationally and coma was part of that and i think coma was drawn to azra because azra really sort of it it felt more like europe than anywhere else in the world i'd say and that was because i suppose of our ethos of that a sporting federation is non-profit. It is for the skaters, for the grassroots, that if you're having a national organisation or a federation, that it should be democratic, it should be open, it should be non-profit, it should be a true federation. And I think Coma was, you know, he was drawn to that because he had the same ideals and we talked about a future international federation. We didn't plan anything then, but we had lots of discussions. But I spent I spent so much of that Newtons down on that finish line with Coma and oh man. It was a friendship I started and I don't know. I think when you know the sport needed a new federation I think um And IDF was formed. You know, it started from meeting Coma that weekend at Newton's. So that's my number 10. Number 9 is very similar, and that is when Hop met Robbo. So I I knew about Robbo. I mean, Robbo's been in the downhill scene um, probably longer than I have. Um, I got into skateboard racing or slalom. Robbo was into downhill pretty much from day one. He was pretty, he was connected a lot to the OG skateboarders, downhill skateboarders. And when we did the 2008 Newton's Playground, everyone sort of had a task. And that task, um, it was all divided up into merch and, and timings and, you know, all that sort of stuff. What Robbo and I got was IT, mainly because we're both in IT, Robbo, Robotech, the dude's a robot, I think, and I was in IT, so I said I'd do that. There wasn't really much that I did. Robbo did a hell of a lot, but I've never met Robbo, and uh, the stories um, of that first Newtons, um, a lot of people ask me if it's true. It is. I actually 
hired a plane for Newtons, for the first Newtons. So I I had commitments in Sydney, even though I'd been helping organise, I wasn't really involved much in the 2008 Newtons. I was actually a competitor in the 2008 Newtons. I was a competitor in the slalom, and I was also part of the organising committee. I also... Um, anyway. And I had commitments in Sydney, so... Um, I said to my wife, if I can get back home after Newton's, you know, by 8pm, you know, am I good to go? And she said, yes. And the only way I could figure I could do it was hire a plane. So I hired a plane and I flew a few skaters up to Newton's. So we hired a plane in Sydney and <laughs> we landed the we landed the plane at, on the tarmac in Bathurst. I tried to get the guy to, um, you know, do a low fly over uh, Mount Panorama, but he wouldn't do it. So there you go. There's some things money can't buy. And the um, I hired a plane. We went up to Newtons. I competed, and I um, I was part of doing the IT. And basically, back then we were we were printing. I mean, the biggest headache was printing the runs and printing the. Um, the sort of the schedule so the the brackets you know the trees and but my favorite robo story when i actually met robo which was uh i well i met lee first and uh robo's sister and she goes oh yeah hop yeah yeah and, and uh she sort of uh i'd known you of me or whatever um and she said oh look here's have a t-shirt and it was a competitor t-shirt so I went, oh, awesome, competitor T-shirt. So I put on the competitor T-shirt. Robbo comes into the tent, sees me putting on the competitor T-shirt and absolutely yells at Lee, what the hell? What are you doing giving out those T's? I said no, you know. We've got no T's. We're running out of T's. We can't give everyone competitor T's. So he's carrying on. And uh, poor Lee just is like going, trying to say, "Uh, but, but. You know, and Robbo's just, you know, so stressed because printers aren't working. And Lee just said, oh, this is James Hopkin, Hop. And he looked at me and he goes, oh, okay, well, you can have a tea. No one else. <laughs> and that was my introduction to Robbo. And he was going a million miles an hour. Stuff wasn't working. I remember driving down. And trying to buying printers, we were buying printers. We we're printing so much stuff, we we're just burning them out. But that was um, that was a trial by fire, and that was Robbo and I doing an event together and solving problems. And I don't know. I think it had a huge impact on the future of skateboarding in Australia, um, because. It was only like a year or two later, I asked Robbo to start working in the hop shop. Robbo worked the hop shop. Um, we organised more downhill, grass hill, event, grass roots events. And we built the biggest skate shop in Australia, probably one of the biggest skate shops in the world. It was, you know, Hopkins Skate, the hop shop at its peak, was just an amazing thing. And Robbo did that. And... With my blessing, you know, when 
I don't want to do a retail shop anymore. Robert did his shop and, you know, that's kudos to Robert. You've got to give it to him because, you know, I didn't sell him Hopkins Skate. You know, he started a new company and he grinded it out and he's built one of the biggest Australian skate brands, one of the biggest skate shops, Basement Skate. And, you know, the amount of stuff and sponsorship that he does with skaters and that I did with longboarders and skaters, you know, we both have. And it all came from that 2008 Newtons when Hop met Robbo. And, uh, but I've got to tell i got to tell a Robbo story. There's so many Robbo stories. I mean, okay, I might tell a few Robbo stories. But, you know, when we did the 2009, um, Newtons, I really wanted live streaming, or at least videoing. I mean, one of the things I was really, that we weren't documenting stuff, especially videos that in 10, 20 years time, someone's going to want to see, you know, Kevin Reimer winning his first world championship. And we had to fear, we couldn't afford to do, you know, professional downstream, live streaming so we we put it together ourselves and Robbo worked on it like we just every day there was a different idea about this about that that 2009 it's crazy what we did we literally we cat cabled cat 5 computer cat 5 cabled the mountain it was like two kilometers of cabling we literally laid cable down the mountain and we had like uh, four or five um, repeaters and so forth but what we did is within a Cat5 cable there's individual copper strands we got analogue video cameras and what we did is we compressed the video the analogue video out of the camera and put it on that one single strand so literally we had like three or four video streams through that cat5 cable being compressed and sent up to the top of the mountain and at the top of the mountain we had a mixing board so we had all the cables coming in then we decompressed it and then we mixed it and we saved it and we couldn't get it live online but what we did is we um, we cut and we uploaded it to the internet so people could watch it. And literally that World Cup final, we uh, that World Cup final, we edited it, quickly put it up online and went out and partied and it was up online on that Sunday night. But I had the best job ever. I was in heaven. I was actually, for most of the weekend mixing the video so i had a mixing table so i had four five i think i had five monitors and i had five cameras coming in and i sat up there at the top of castrol tower and just watched all the the video streaming it, it was just so much fun it was it was a dream come true literally for eight hours a day i just watched just skateboard racing and at the time it wasn't being streamed online so I was the only one watching it and I was mixing it 
and uh, sending it to a hard drive to be recorded. And I still have that hard drive, and a lot of that footage hasn't been seen, so I will try and get it up online. But Robbo, that world championship, it was... um, You know that scene in Caddyshack where the golfers are out and it's pouring with rain and they get struck by lightning and it's just crazy, they're not going to stop? Well, this is the Thursday night before the 2009 World Championships. We had a storm on Mount Panorama that I've never seen before. It was like literally skaters were going, that's it, we're calling off the event. We had hay bales floating down the mountain. That's how much water was coming down this mountain. The hay bales were floating down. But Robbo was like cabling the mountain. We'd already cabled the mountain, but he was trying to get the cabling into the top of Mount um, Castrol Tower. So literally we had, like just think of how much water takes to wash a hay bale down a, a road. That's how much water. There's lightning, there's wind, like literally trees are falling down and Robbo is on the roof of Castrol Tower. He's got no harness, he's got nothing. Just think, I just... He's trying to cable, bring the cables up and into the top of Castrol Tower. Literally, like, I don't even know how he didn't get struck by lightning. Um, My other... um, my other funny story is the next year, like, you know, I think Robbo just thought, okay, I've taken one for the team. I'm never going to do something crazy like that again, but I'll let Hop do it. So on the second one, we, we didn't have a finish line camera. So, you know, our goal was to get a finish line camera. So when we cabled the mountain in 2010, the um, Robbo had me walking through the bush. Like, seriously, I could... I, I'm I'm surprised I didn't get bitten by a black snake. I got lost in the bush. Like, literally, the grass was up to my head. It was just, like, animals in there. And Robert's just going, keep going. He's like, just wave your hand if you need some help. Thanks, Robert. And it was all for nothing. We never got that. Well, we sort of got that, that finish line camera going. But I'm going to come back to there was a rainbow on the end of that um, that mission that I did coming through the bush because I popped out at Conrod Strait and uh, I saw something there, just some of the racing that happened that I'll never forget. And I'll talk about that. That's uh, coming up in another story. And it rained that weekend on the Sunday for the racing. We never really got the footage. No one wanted to take their cameras out. That was a bit of a missed weekend, that one, for our live streaming. We worked really hard for that one too. But they're my Robbo stories. It, ro- the best stories always involve uh, with Robbo tech. Just, you know, some of the harebrained ideas we've got. They're not harebrained. It's just trying to do something that's impossible. And uh, whether that be cutting a board you know, recutting trucks, doing anything, whatever, trying to do live streaming. Anyway, they're always the best Robo stories. I'm looking at the time here, and i really got to do these stories quicker or we'll be here all day. This is going to turn into the world's longest podcast. 
I didn't think about how long I should have done each story for. So uh, I am going to try and do the stories as quickly as possible. So we are up to number eight, which is Michaud Urban. And I, I aren't, I am not reading from a script from these stories. A lot of these stories are off the top of my head. So did I make a disclaimer at the beginning that maybe I'll stretch the truth to tell a good story? Anyway, people can fact check me later. I think most of the facts are right. But Michaud Urban. Michaud, we changed a few rules because of Michaud. If I remember correctly, he did get knocked out one of the first Newtons very early, like in the first round or something. And I believe in our first races, we never had like a a loser's bracket. So when I say a loser's bracket, I mean, you know, two go through. So there's four 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 races in a in a race. Two go through to the next round and two go into another bracket. And we run a second bracket and then eventually the winners of that bracket go into the um to to the top tree. And one of the reasons is why we came up with that type of tree was if an overseas competitor came out and got knocked out in the first round, which is highly possible. You make one mistake, you slide into the hay bales, that's it. You're going home, out in the first round. And, uh, you know, two slower skaters behind you who have been sandbagging get the win. I mean, that's one of the great things about racing, but it's not fair for um, overseas competitors or the, the pros. So we did come up with, and I'm pretty sure it was because of Misha. I mean, I might have that wrong. So Misha will probably ring up and tell me, nah, it's wrong. Anyway, <clears throat> the thing about Misha is he is the consummate competitor. And I always enjoyed having Misha in the shop He'd always come in for Riders' Day. And one of my favourite memories of Michaud in the shop was, you know, he he helps serve customers. So he's in the skate shop. He's literally, you know, one of the, you know, fastest skaters in the world. He has, like, all these brands. I think then he was on ABEC 11 wheels. And this kid comes in and asks all these questions. I don't know if the kid really knew it was Michaud Urban, and the kid wanted to buy, you know, a different set of wheels, not ABEC 11. And Misha was fantastic. He ran through all about the wheels, what made them good, and he got the sale, even though it wasn't for ABEC 11. And for me, that really showed, you know, true character from Misha that, you know, he's a skater. It was more about the kid was skating than about that this kid about selling him, you know, the brand of wheels that I'm skating. And I've had some great conversations with Misha over the years. One of them was when uh, at the back of the presentation night of the 2009 Newtons, when K. Rimes won the world championship and Misha and I had a great conversation talking about the future and racing and the mountain. And I think being a race organiser... They're some of the 
the moments that you do, why you do a race organising. I mean, if you love downhill racing like I do, you've got to start organising events, not just purely because they have more events, but it gives you the excuse to talk to all the top skaters, it gives you an excuse to talk to brands and just to ask questions that you've always wanted to know from your favourite skaters. And some of the things with Misha, I always wanted to know his setup, what sort of duo he was running. So Misha was the... He was the king of, you know, not not telling you exactly what he was riding. So I know some years he had special wheels poured, so it looked like he was running ADAs when he was really running harder duros, but the wheel colour indicated that he was running softer duros than he really was. So there was a, there was a little bit... That's a little bit of uh, Misha, the competitor, coming out, not wanting to give anyone uh, any tips and how he might be uh, setting up his board and doing stuff. So for Misho's year was 2012 and literally it was his year. He was untouchable on Mount Panorama. I've never seen someone dominate other than K Rhymes, Kevin. I've never seen anyone dominate racing like he did and it wasn't that see he he raced the mountain a little bit different Kevin would just go out to the lead not make a mistake so you had to make the mistakes trying to catch Kevin I mean that was his style of riding Delure was a lot like that that's how he likes to roll but Misha was a bit different he had that mountain on a string he could almost accelerate and what he would do is he would stay out of trouble in the S's. So he'd get through the S's, he'd get acceleration out of the S's, and he'd make his move on that back straight coming into forest. So he would literally pounce on everyone on that, that back straight, and he'd like take one or two competitors, and it was like he was accelerating. It was like he had an engine on his board. It was incredible the amount of speed he got out of the S's and he'd like tuck, accelerate, get into where he wanted to be in forest and just then motor home. And it worked for him in 2012. And that's why he's my number eight. Number seven is Skatey Katie, Katie Nielsen. Nelson. And yes, I have a soft, soft spot for Katie. If you have a look into my blogs, I always enjoyed having her in the shop. She was fantastic in the shop, in the hop shop. She ran the shop with me for a few days. And, like, she was taking phone calls, doing orders. It was We had a lot of fun. But what made Katie get into this number seven, my number seven uh, top moment at Newton's, is she was robbed. In 2010, she was absolutely robbed on Mount Panorama. So I'll do the setup for you. In 2010, it was a hot weekend. And it was just classic Mount Panorama racing. Delua was untouchable. Like, literally, he was the fastest person on that mountain. And But the problem was, was it rained on Sunday? On the Saturday was, you could not, Sunday 2010, 
for the qualifying was probably the most perfect day of racing we've ever had on Mount Panorama. It was just magic. magic. But the storm claims came in, the storm clouds came in, and on finals day, it rained. And it rained, and it rained. It was so wet. And the competitors voted to keep racing, and it turned into a slide fest. It was just comical. But the two best skaters, male, female, junior, senior, out of everyone, was Kevin Ryan Ryan, and Katie Nelson. Those two killed it. And the reason was, was I think, just because of their free-riding chops. I mean, Kevin looked like he was snowboarding. That's how he was attacking the mountain. And so was Katie. She was just so... She was just so at ease with sliding her board. And I where I was for that event was... We had set up a camera hut about just above Forest Elbow. So I was looking as people came through the S's. I could see the S's, that little back straight, and then people going into Forest Elbow. So that was where I was. I had like a little lookout there. I was on the camera filming. We didn't film that day, as I said previously, because of the rain. And like Kevin, Kevin was unstoppable. He was literally just snowboarding through the S's, all that sort of stuff. But Katie was just, was equal. Not equal. I mean, I think Kevin still would have, you know, if, uh, I mean, Kevin deserved the win that year. But Katie was number two. She really was. And she was killing it. She was going through those S's. She was the only one other than Kevin, I suppose a few other, but literally the only skater tucking going into Forest Elbow. I mean, so many people were just going, oh my God, they were putting up their hands, their air braking, doing anything they could do to slow down in the rain. And Katie Nelson is tucking, going as fast as she could into Forest Elbow. She was a beast that weekend. And she was like winning. She was like uh, going through the S's and I was so excited because I just thought, this is it. A woman is going to win an Opens event. Like, you know, anything can happen in a race, especially when it's raining. If it's like Katie and Kevin in the final, who knows? I mean, Kevin might make a mistake and Katie might go through for the win or Katie might, you know, beat him through the S's. So as the race progressed, Katie was getting better. Like, seriously, she was. But then it came, I forget which which event. Was it the semis or the quarters? But she was in the front and the boys in the back crashed. And she basically got taken out from behind. I mean, it was an accident. It wasn't done on purpose. Uh, and she crashed. And that was it. Her weekend was over. And it wasn't her fault. She didn't make a mistake. It was just... One of those things, it was fate. But I'm telling you, if she had got into the final, she had a hot chance of winning Newtons in 2010. And that's why she's my number seven moment, because Katie, she got robbed. You got robbed, Katie. But 
I've told the story so everyone knows how good you were on Newtons in 2010. Six and five. So six is Delure and five is Kevin Reimer. Should we do them together or separate? We'll do them separate. I mean, they pretty much run together almost because a lot of the stories overlap with these two. But Delure, my number six moment, he is the best skater that's competed, that hasn't won, truly. And a little bit like Katie got robbed, you know, DeLua got robbed in 2010 because that was DeLua's year. Uh, He was the fastest man on the mountain and it rained and DeLua don't do rain. I mean, there was a funny moment where, you know, there is the option when it rains on race weekend, on the finals day, of the competitors can vote. And if they vote not to race, then the times, the qualifying times stand as the official results. And Dulu was number one. And I still remember the meeting. They're all under the awnings. We had all these big tents set up at the start line. All the competitors are under the tents. Striker is like, you know, talking to everyone and winding everyone, you know, winding everyone up, motivating everyone. And it came to the vote. And who wants to race? Everyone put up their hand. Who votes not to race? One hand went up. Delua. And who could blame him? I mean, he really did deserve to win that weekend. He, uh, and I've had some great conversations with Delua over the internet. And I told him that Mount Panorama owes him a win. That if he keeps coming back, she eventually will deliver. But I think she owes Delua a win because he has. I don't think there's anyone that's competed so hard other than Kevin on that mountain and has been consistently in the top three. And in 2010, remember I told that story of uh, how I nearly got eaten by snakes or bitten by snakes, brown snakes, black snakes, red belly snakes. I don't know what else is in that bush. And Robbo had me trekking through the bush. Well, I popped out at Conrad Strait. And I'm running cable, so I'm sort of checking for competitors and making sure, you know, that where we can get this cable to and just watching people come down the mountain. I hear this noise. It sounds like a freight train. Just this, you know, like a plane going to take off. And I just see this black cannonball coming down Conrod Strait and it's Delua in full flight he's come through Forest Elbow and he's doing his tuck and he is literally in his element just a cannonball going down Conrod Strait Mark 1 no one can touch him but the funny thing is was watching everyone behind him fighting for his air bubble Everyone's trying to get in his slipstream and get 
and they are literally fighting to get into Delua's slipstream. And the big man is literally dragging them all down Conrod Strait. Nothing was going to stop him. And I always said, Delua in that, that black. Remember in 2009 and 10, he had that tight black leather suit. Oh, dude, the dude was unstoppable in that suit. I always said, he shouldn't have given up that suit. Bring back that tight black suit. And that's my Delua moment. There was another... Uh, Delua is always... Um, there's a presence about him when he turns up to a, a fan signing. And we used to always have, like, um, writer's day in the hop shop, meet the writers, get their signatures, all that sort of stuff. And I remember one year when... The biggest year we did it, and Delua arrived... And there was like this hush of all the young fans, all the uh, the kids there to get all rough. Delua, Delua's here. <laughs> and he was always such a gentleman, um, always spending times with the fans. But boy, he has nearly won that race so many times. And the year that Misho won in 2012... I don't have the video footage. I've been trying to find it, but I was in charge. I was doing the finish line camera. So I had the camera set up so when the riders were coming across the line at the finish line, I was filming them in slow motion. And I don't know what happened to the final. I've got like all the semis and the quarters. I don't know what happened to the final. But that race when uh, Misho won... Delua is literally, he, he's so close behind. I, I think it was a little bit longer, the track. Delua would have had him. But there was, I think there was less than a board space between them. That's how close Delua came to winning. And I hope he's coming to Newton's this year in 2018. Is he going to compete in the the seniors and the opens i hope he wins both so we're up to number five we're halfway and number five is kevin reimer k rhymes you'd think he'd be my number one but yeah to be number one it has to be a good story and there's lots of good stories about k rhymes i always he was always awesome to have on the mountain and in the shop the 2009 World Championships. He won that race. I remember he was on orangutan wheels at the time and I had a car boot full of in-heats and four presidents, ADAs. And I remember Kevin, he needed some wheels for the final. He needed some fresh wheels. He didn't have enough fresh wheels, so I gave him some wheels. He went through all the wheels I had. And there must have been... I must have had, I don't know, 20, 30 sets in the boot of my car. And I don't normally have wheels in my car like that, so don't go be breaking into my car. He went through and separated them all out. And I asked him what he was doing, and he could tell the poor date based on the cause and the urethane and what it looked like and probably the bubbles as well but 
he was separating them out according to the ones that he wanted to use. And he found the poor date that he thought was fastest, and they were the wheels he used. And I suppose it is that sort of attention to detail that makes a great skater. I think Kevin is probably the the greatest, the best skater I've ever seen, the best downhill skater I've seen. He's won three Newtons, which is incredible, 2009 World Championships. He backed it up in 2010, and then he won 2013. When he races, he's the person to beat. I suppose that's the mark of a great skater. He spent such a great amount of time in our shop just talking to fans and hanging out and being patient and suffering all my questions about his trucks, his wheels. I've done a few blog posts on me discussing his trucks and his wheels and always enjoyed having him on the mountain. I hope we can get him back to Newton's again one year. Number four, which is my favourite Jacko story. And I know I know a lot of you are going to think that I'm going to say the Jacko story of Dado pushing Jacko down the mountain in his wheelchair and crashing in Forest Elbow. But I'm not going to tell that story. And to think about it, why haven't I put Dado's crash on uh, Dado's crash, his amazing crash that he walked away in 2009. I mean, that should be in my top ten, and it's not. So there's so many stories at Newton's. It's just, you can't tell them all. So this is not a definitive list of, oh, these must be the top ten. It's just my top ten. But I suppose Dado should be in there, but he's not. I'm sorry, Dado. But I'm going to tell the Jacko story. So... When we, when we skated it in 2008, it was like almost half the Australian competitors pulled out before the first run. Um, maybe it wasn't that many, but a lot did. Because you look at Mount Panorama on videos and you look at it in the car racing and it doesn't look that steep. But once you get on Mount Panorama, on that mountain... It's an intimidating mountain. You know, the mountain at the S's, it drops one metre for every metre. So it is like a roller coaster. And a lot of the competitors, that's what they love about it. The acceleration they get going into the mountain, it's exhilarating. And it's also, you feel light as you go into those S's. And depending on where the wind is and the conditions of the road, how hot it is, It can be a sticky road, a slidey road. You can be, like, pushed into the hay bales there. So there's a lot of variables. But it is an intimidating mountain. It is completely enclosed by a concrete wall. So there's no forgiving there. A hay bale, those hay bales, they're backed up against concrete. So if you're sliding, you slide through the gap of those hay bales, you're hitting concrete. The whole time when you're skating on Mount Panorama, yeah, you know, you've got concrete on either side of you. So it's a pretty gnarly mountain. It was a mountain that had a lot of foot braking. 
in 2008 and 2009. And I still remember a comment that someone made on the Coast Longboarding Forum about watching Kevin foot-breaking in Forest Elbow and someone making the comment, man, that must be a gnarly track if it's got Kevin foot-breaking going into like a corner. So there's a few lines at that Forest Elbow. A couple of them, those lines, the more sketchy ones, take you very close to the hay bales. Particularly that last hay bale, which protects a... which hides a guardrail and a driveway. That's literally what this story is about because that uh, those hay bales Jacko has a love-hate relationship with them I will admit it I mean 2008 2009 Jacko was he was the number one skater on the Hopkins racing team I, you know he was pretty much always there in one of the top competitors in our Hopkins racing team pushing to get the world championships in 2009. I mean, we were setting that up for Jacko to win because I just thought for the the sport to boom in Australia, if we could have a world champion at downhill, it would just be amazing. We kept going back. I want an Aussie to win Newtons. I want an Aussie to win a World Cup race. Can you believe? To this date, an Australian has not won a World Cup race. It's unbelievable. We've got so close so many times. We've come second in World Championship events, plenty of seconds and thirds and fourths. We're yet to get the win. We've come close so many times. Jacko got knocked out of the 2009 World Championships. He never competed. He had an old man moment, stepped off his board wrong in uh, Mount Kira and literally broke his leg. Those sort of situations are devastating because... You get knocked out even before you start competing. But it did have the effect that Jacko spent a lot of time watching competitors going down Mount Panorama, especially in 2009, watching people like Dado skate down and all the top skaters and Kevin. We had, like, video. So he was watching video and he spent a bit of time down in Forest Elbow, I think. He told me later that year that he thought he knew some lines. He he had mountain. He's watched it enough skaters going down that he had the mountain figured out. I'm pretty sure this was in 2010 on the Saturday. I was at the top of the mountain. We had a big screen, I mean a flat screen TV that was showing the video. We had Striker. He was at Forest Elbow. He was doing the commentating. It was going across the the mountain. We had like speakers on the mountain. Jacko told me today was the day something special was going to happen. It was Jacko's no-break run of Mount Panorama. And it was just the hairs on the back of my neck just stood up watching Jacko just grab this mountain and tame it. It was amazing. So whenever Jacko like did a run on Mount Panorama, Stryker would always go up because he loved the way that like skaters would attack Mount Panorama. I mean, you know, Stryker is not really the go slow foot braking type of dude. You know what I mean? He wanted people sliding. He wanted people doing 
like little speed checks or he wanted just big, fast, ballsy runs down Mount Panorama. And he got it with Jacko. And Jacko was just, he was trying stuff. He was trying to go as fast as he could. He didn't want to stop. And it was just seemed impossible that someone could do Mount Panorama and not break. It just seemed crazy at the time. It was, the mountain was just too intimidating. And it was just too dangerous. And Jacko did it. And he started off and, and Striker's voice goes up. Hey, Jacko! And he's just carrying on about, oh, watch how this guy attacks the mountain. And Jacko came through the S's. And he had this way of just just accelerating through the S's. And then when he came into that back straight, he stood up and he started carving. And I think Stryker knew what was going on. He's going, he's not slowing down. I love the way he's just attacking this mountain. And what Jacko was doing was he was looking for his line. He was looking for that line that when he came into Forest Elbow, he had to hit a certain spot and he knew he could rail the corner at top speed. And he's carving and he's hit that line. And Stryker is on, he is standing up and he is yelling and spit is going everywhere. He's literally screaming. He's, a, he's losing his voice and he's screaming with Jacko going, this is not happening. And Jacko t- just railed this corner and it just looked like certain doom. And everyone's just glued to the TV monitors. It's just like, it just seemed like it was just, we're watching a train wreck or a car crash. There is no way he's going to do it because the line he picked was one that was lining up with that last hay bale. And Jacko, he had, he, he knew he could do it. Somehow he knew he could do it. And he just tucked that, that he railed that corner and it looked like he was heading straight for that hay bale. Like, it was insane. On the t- It looked like he went through the hay bale. It literally looked like he went through it. That was how close he was. He's, like, just, like, brushed past the hay bale. He's already in his tuck. He's wobbled a bit, so it's like he's overcorrected, and he's just squatted and settled down, and he's in his tuck, and he's on to... Conrad straight and Stryker was just, I think he passed out he was screaming so much it was an amazing moment probably a lot of people on the mountain just didn't realize how a bigger moment that was that's why I love skating all types of skating but particularly downhill but I love when people do the impossible it's and Jacko did the impossible that weekend and I'll never forget it it's it's just it was an amazing moment. Number three is Stryker. And what can I say about Stryker that hasn't been said before? The man's a legend. He's the voice of downhill. And we got him over to be our MC commentator in the 2009 IGSA World Championships. Stryker had been back, has been back a few years. We didn't have him last year. We'd love to have him back again. He is an amazing comment. I mean, you either love him or you hate him or you tolerate him, but he really is the voice of downhill. And when you're, you have an event like downhill 
where it's hard for like the audience to know who's coming down. When you have someone like Stryker calling the race, he can make sense and he can make it colourful and make it exciting. That's what he did. I, I will have to put together a striker, you know, some of the great moments of striker uh, from some of our video footage and audio that we have. I'll try to string together some of uh, striker's top moments. But I always love meeting up with striker because he's just so full of life. For any other race organisers out there, the amount of time and value you get from striker is insane. The amount of time that he put into anyone that had any interest in downhill, and especially young kids, just getting them excited about downhill and skateboarding. Stryker could tell tales, he could give advice, he can just, he's a great ambassador for the sport. We always loved having him on the mountain. I've got a couple of, I can't tell all my striker stories because (laughs) there's so many and some of them might come across wrong the the probably the funniest one i have is striker ruining the bathtub in the azra hotel suite that we got so one year now which year was it i forget which one it was was it the 2009 or 2010 one year we were in, we had like the big suite. There's a big hotel, Mount Panorama Hotel at the bottom of Conrad Strait. And we had the big corner suite. It was good because we could fit everyone in there. But it also had a big spa bath. Stryker had come out, he'd come out early to Australia. He travelled around, he went up to Queensland. And I don't think he showered the whole time he was there. He was just like, just full on, just non-stop the whole time. The dude doesn't stop. He's the he's a professional when he's doing his... Uh, he did the whole watermelon smash over his head at the end. That was it. It was time for striker to relax. And I think it was just... He went and had this bubble bath in the Azra apartment room in our suite. I had, uh, I had his money for his commentating and we also sold a whole lot of uh, Coast t-shirts. So I had his cash. I couldn't find him. Like, where is he? When you're finishing an event like that, you just want to get everything sorted. Has everyone been paid? Have we got everything sorted out? Especially the cash, because there's cash for competitors, for prize money, you know, is striker being paid, all that sort of stuff. So you just want to get it sorted out so you can just relax and party in the uh, end of race party. I'm gonna have, it was like burning my eyes out. I had to go into the into the apartment bathroom, and there is this ginormous bubble bath. It's like bubbles everywhere. There's just overflowing. It's like water flowing into the striker has got like the world's largest spa bath going, and he's in there just having the time of his life. And I gave him the cash. I'd like to think that I had some photos of that. I haven't been able to find them, but I'm sure those photos will turn up one day of Striker with all his cash in his bubble bath. He destroyed the bath. They couldn't clean that bath. There was dirt rings on that bathtub. I think they actually had to destroy that. They had to rebuild the whole bathroom after that. It was like, I wouldn't be surprised if they sort of like had to remodel the whole floor, but they definitely were replacing that bathtub. And if you're a race organiser, I don't wish that upon you.
Strike her in the bathtub. Okay. Number two is Team Green. And if you don't know who Team Green is, shame on you. You should look them up right now. And the Team Green I'm talking about is Raggy and Scoot. That's Scott Scoot Smith. That came to the 2009 IGSA World Championships at Newton's. They came as a team. They came as Team Green and bright green hair, long boards, they stood out and they had a lot of fun. It was chaos for a week while they were in uh, Sydney and travelled around. There's so many Team Green stories, but I'll tell a few. They were the first to sticker the original Hop Shop door. So if you're an OG Hopkins Skate customer, you prob- you will remember the little warehouse we used to have. And that's no longer there anymore. It's now a big block of units. And that reddish glass door, you might have seen it in a few videos and seen a few photos of it, but it used to be completely skate-stickered, sticker-slapped. And it was so funny, like uh, skaters would come after hours and peel the stickers off to put on their boards. But that tradition, or that was started by Team Green, they put a Coast Longboarding sticker on there. That was one of those old ones that had the skater, yet the colour in the skater's legs to complete the skater on the sticker. And a Team Green sticker, which I think got eventually half peeled off, stuck on someone's board. The other funny story about Team Green in the hop shop, and it wasn't really a shop then. It was just like we had ramps. We still had the ramps. It was just basically skater club with just skaters would hang out and skate the ramps and occasionally buy something we had the online store that we were running it wasn't like a full-on shop like it would be probably in the next six to 12 months and team green hung out and as longboarders do when they so this was 2009 so i think jacko had skated in the first newtons 2008 and then he went to he went to canada to race and he did danger bay and got absolutely hammered in Crash Corner. He had a really bad crash. He got helicoptered off the mountain. And he spent, uh, I think he spent a couple of months on Raggy's couch. That's how we got to know Team Green. And they came over and they hung out at the hop shop. And as longboarders do when they hang out, everyone talks about their setups. You know, how's this setup? Harry Clark in my office today is setting up for a uh, Shreddy Mike video. And I was asking about his setup, as you do. He wedged his rogue trucks. And he said it's taken him two years of just playing around, trying different things to get the setup that he felt right. He just didn't, oh, I, this is how I set up my board. You know, ask someone to get someone to set it up. And that's what a lot of downhill guys do. They test stuff until it works. So Jacko was doing that. He'd only been doing downhill for about a year or two. So he was still trying to work out what his perfect setup was. So it was only natural, you know. He asked Scoot how he set up his Evo, how you set up your board. And Scoot had this blank look on his face. And then he turned to Raggy, who was on the other side of the hop shop. Raggy, how do we set up our boards? And Raggy just looked and he said, I don't know. It's the way we got them from Lanyards. That's Team Green. 
it's all about going downhill fast. Don't think about it. Just go downhill fast. And I'm pretty sure it was at around this time. It might have been later on when they were in Europe, but Jacko wanted he wanted to try out the Evo that um, Scoot was riding. But the trucks were super loose, like janky loose. The bushings were hardly being used. It was that loose. So Jacko decided to tighten up the the kingpin nut. And as he tightened it up, it wouldn't move. And the kingpin just busted, rusted through. So it just wasn't even, wasn't even using, tightening down his trucks. That's the control that he had going downhill. Team Green travelled... I'm pretty sure they caught the train out there. They travelled out to Bathurst. And if anyone remembers Team Green from the 2009 Newtons, they had those Zubazellas. I don't know where they got them from. And this is before Zubazellas were a thing. And if you don't know what a Zubazella is, it was that horn for the World Soccer, the Football World Cup in South Africa that uh, all the South Africans were blowing. And it's just literally a big, long plastic horn. It just goes... just You just blow through it. It just makes an annoying, like, sound. Team Green found a couple of these. I don't know where they found them, whether they brought them from Canada, they bought them at the airport in a $2 shop. And this was their thing. They would, the, the whole weekend, they were blowing these horns. We were doing the presentations, riders' meetings, but more more annoyingly, in the riders' camp area. They'd literally, like, roll around in their tent and just blow their horns just randomly at 1am in the morning. So you'd hear Team Green blowing their horns at, like, 2am in the morning and then all the other skaters just yelling, Shut up! My favourite Team Green story is them arriving in Bathurst. And they arrived early, not knowing where to go, where anything is, where the mountain is, and it was night. So they found the park in the middle of the city. Now, it's like a town. Bathurst is a small town. It's a regional town, so it's not like what you call a big city. It's a suburb. It's a... And there's a nice park there in the centre, surrounded by shops and the council area. And Team Green just rolled up, slept under some plants in a garden bed and woke up in the morning ready for practice to find where the mountain was. But that's how Team Green rolled. That 2009 Newtons, they really did. They were awesome. At Newton's, I got to know Scoot. I helped him with a bit of sponsorship that year. We were like one of his major sponsors, and he went on to do some amazing races in 2009 in Europe and in America and Canada. Okay, time for the last story. And has this podcast gone on too long? I'm sorry. I just love the chat. I love talking stories. And this story is Ethan Lau, 2008, at the first Newtons. And the first Newtons, it was Azra's first downhill race. So our first major, big race. 
and we'd done a lot of slalom events up until then. It was our first event. We had no idea of, like, I mean, the major thing was safety. And if you've been to Mount Panorama, you'll know that the road is surrounded by concrete. It has a concrete wall on either side of the road, goes for, you know, most of the track. And the council hay bailed the whole track. I can't remember how many. We still do have the original paperwork and outlay, but there was, I mean, I'm thinking like 10, 15,000 hay bales. There was something like, it was an incredible amount. We use 1,000 hay bales now, between between 7 and 1,000. I think last Newton's we did 900. That was a, it's pretty much the sweet spot. I think we had it right with the 900 hay bales. But this was, it was so many hay bales. And it was just three hay bales stacked high, side by side, on either side of the track the whole way. It was hay everywhere. It was crazy. And it took a mammoth amount of work. So if anyone's done hay bale duty, if you can imagine doing that many hay bales, they spent three days hay baling. Like, how crazy is that? So they had the hay baling crew. There was just this constant hay bales coming in, being stacked, lots of water being drunk. Fitzy, he was a legend. He sort of organised that, was part of it. And on Conrod Strait, so... One of the features of Mount Panorama is there's some farms there. Those farms, a few of them have sort of changed their purpose and so forth. But back then there was a lot of fruit trees. There was plums and peaches, orchards. So there's a lot of orchards on the mountain. There was one orchard on Conrad Strait. Boys are hay baling. This is probably a few days before the event was going to start. And someone walks out of one of the orchards. So they're hay baling and this person just comes out of nowhere, just wanders out of the orchard with like eating a peach and a peach in his hand, sort of just comes up and goes, this place is paradise. And it was Ethan Lau. He'd been living in the orchard, eating fruit and bombing the mountain. The crew sort of had to explain that he wasn't allowed to bomb the mountain, that uh, it's pretty much illegal when it's not closed for an event and there's big signs that says no skateboarding. There's a lot of things you're not allowed to do on that mountain when it's not closed, and skateboarding's one of them. Dude, eating farmer's fruit, they have guns here. Like You're liable to get shot at if you're, like, uh, you're not in Hawaii. But... Ethan just thought he was. He just thought it was paradise. Sleeping in the orchard, eating fruit, bombing a big hill whenever he wanted to. And Ethan went on, and I should have fact-checked this before, he came second or third in the first Newtons. He was sponsored by Sector 9, and this is before Downhill Division. He did incredibly well. It was his mountain. The story went that We'd always tell the Ethan Lau story in the hop shop, especially if it was something to do with Sector 9 boards, because people would ask other boards good. You know, as stories go and they get told and varied, 
we would tell the story of Ethan Lau. And eventually the story, you know, Ethan Lau, he was on Sector 9, blah, blah, blah. And eventually the story morphed into, you know, this Hawaiian downhill guy. He came to Australia. He bought a Sector 9 board out of a surf shop entered Newton's and made it on the podium. And I know that's not true, but we told various different stories about, you know, the quality of Sector 9 products that, you know, and a Hawaiian downhill free rider came to Australia on his Sector 9 board and he, he beat the world in one of the, the, you know, the gnarliest, fastest tracks in the world. I'm thinking Ethan never came back, but... A lot of Australians have uh, have gone to Hawaii and hooked up with uh, Ethan to bomb hills, eat coconuts, to swim in the waterfalls of Hawaii. You'll see a few of those stories on the Hopkin blog. I'm pretty sure we kept those ones of uh, some of the crew going to Hawaii and meeting Ethan, doing barefoot bombs on Hawaiian mountains. And that's the Ethan Lau story. And that is it. They're my top ten. There's so many stories connected to Newtons. There's, and I didn't even go into the 2017 race, which had just as many great stories. That's it. I think, did I do the disclaimer at the beginning that these stories, they're, they're from my head. They weren't scripted. I didn't write them out. I wasn't reading off a script. I didn't fact check. You know, it is my memory. It's, uh, I know all the stories aren't completely accurate. I might have got some of the dates wrong. But, you know, let's not get the, let the truth get in the way of a good story. If I didn't tell your story, if I didn't mention you, I'm sorry. We'll probably do another one another day. All the volunteers, all the people that helped out. I think I mentioned all the Azra crew. Like a huge shout out to Fitzy because I mean Fitzy was one of the original as original Azra crews. He gave up so much to give that first Newtons, and he only did one. One was enough. He lit the fire, and it's been burning ever since. So thanks, Fitzy, and all the other crew. I can't mention everyone that volunteers, or the mums, the dads, the uncles, the aunts. The brothers, the sisters, the cousins, the friends, the photographers, everyone. I, I can't mention you all. You all, the volunteers make Newtons. We couldn't do it without you. And that's it. My next podcast. Should I do the the sneak preview? So I have interviewed Dan Pape. Dan Pape is number five. If you don't know who Dan is, you will find out. And Dan has done so much in connected to skateboard and longboard and downhill. We could not, we talked, like literally it's a mammoth one. We talked for two hours. We didn't even get to Skate Slate yet. So I don't know. I'm going to have to break that one up a little bit. We'll definitely be doing part two with uh, Dan. But if you don't know who Dan is, Dan is a Canadian that now lives in Japan and he was at the first Danger Bay. He uh, rode a very unique downhill board or longboard 
and he did downhill on it. He also created the world's first downhill movie called Fellowship of the Bearing. He started, um, he designed one of the f- the first downhill helmet with lig, te- not lig technologies. He did training schools. He's a co-founder of Skate Slate and Skate Slate Japan. Uh, the dude is, he has done so much in regard to downhill. And I interview him in number five and they are stories that you will not believe they're great stories and some stories i haven't even heard before so that's number five i've got number six and number seven in the works as well so i'll tell you about those the next podcast hop out